You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? TheElephantInTheRoom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Well, I've got some really exciting news. My book has finally been published. It's called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. The book has been a long time in the making and draws upon my experience as a selling agent where I sold hundreds of property at, before and after auction. And if you go back to episode eight, you'll hear from auctioneer David Scholes. And David was responsible for a great deal of what I learnt back in my selling days. Now, of course, I've built on this knowledge over the past 13 years as a buyer's agent. And then the amazing guests we've had on this podcast have taught me even more, specifically Damien Cooley in episode two. Tim Heaviside in episode 36, uh, Phil DeFagley in episode 92, and let's not forget the episode that kicked this whole thing off, where behavioural scientist Simon Russell taught us about 12 ways in which our subconscious is motivated by auctioneers and the entire auction process. So in this episode... Chris is going to pick my brains and I'm going to share some of the secrets I reveal in the book. And at the end, I'll give you a discount code where you can get your very own copy for a 30% discount. Veronica, yes. congratulations. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, that's a good effort. Um, you know, they don't take, um, they don't just happen. How long is it taking you to write the book? Oh, well, interestingly enough, over years and years and years, I've been writing blogs and articles, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And so I started putting a framework around it in January. I spent most of January filling in the gaps and, mm-hmm. and adding content. And I thought that that was pretty much it. You send it off to an editor and, you know, just gets whipped into shape. But mm-hmm. <laughs> about three edits later yes, and an additional uh, 10,000 words, we have a book. Okay. And you're going for the bookshops and airports and all that sort of stuff or is it going to how, like, how far are you going to promotion-wise? Well, if they'll have me. Yes. I'll, anyone that will stock my book, anyone out there, a book stockist, <laughs> <laughs> you can have it. I'll and spread did, the word. <laughs> why did you go for auctions? Like, Why did you focus as, as a key part of that in your title and why didn't you just go for how to buy property well? Well, A, there's so much already written out there about how to buy a property well. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I guess I find the auction, the whole auction process, very mystifying for most people. But for me, I get it. Mm. I just get the language. I get the objectives, objections as well. Mm. I get what everyone is trying to achieve in the process. And because I understand it so intrinsically, it's like I speak this language and I just realise that most people don't speak the language of auction. So I do. And do you think... Do you know how many, like, in terms of the areas, like in the inner rings of, say, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, not so much, but what percentage of the quality assets do you think actually still sell under auction conditions? Like, do you think it's half or? Oh, more than that. Yeah. So in the inner ring, so it traditionally, even when I started in real estate back in 2000, it was traditionally an inner ring thing. And, mm. you know, anywhere outside of that, it all, it all came down to whether the vendor would pay for advertising or not. And so in the outer areas, it's like, oh, vendors won't pay for advertising. Mm-hmm. And in the inner areas, they sort of started paying for it. Melbourne has, is known as the auction capital of Australia, so mm-hmm. that's actually much more prevalent. And even in the outer areas, I think probably we're using auctions or selling more at auction earlier than in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And certainly as the market started booming and people realised in outer areas that they were going to you know, there was demand. You know, when there's more demand, mm. obviously, that's ideal. And also when the, you've got a non-homogenous product. So if you've got a building of apartments and they're all exactly the same, there's not much point really auctioning them. But Are they getting auctioned, though? I don't know. Sometimes, yeah. Are they? Mm. Yeah. Well, not so much the new stuff. Yeah, that's like what I mean, yeah. very unusual that somebody would 
auction a five-year-old apartment in a block mm. where everything's the same. But weirdly enough, see, this is the thing too. Auction used to be uh, a distressed sale. It was like a desperate mm. vendor. And then it sort of flipped to be really about, well, I know I've got a unique product. I know that they're scarce. I know there's lots of buyers around that will fight for it and I don't mm. really know what it's worth, you know, unless those buyers get out there and compete. So it's the perfect forum for it. So it's sort of interesting how auction sort of fits both ends of the spectrum in a way, the bargain hunters and the and the premium property. And do you think some agents, like some agents you know they're always going to auction, but sometimes they never actually go to the auction? Mm. You know, they sell prior to auction. Do you yeah. notice that around there's lots of agents that – use auctions as a smoke screen and then they end up selling? <laughs> yeah, and this is the thing. One of the benefits of an auction for an agent in terms of selling is that if you're not really sure on where the price is at or where buyers might be prepared to pay for a certain property, then you put it on an auction campaign and the market pretty much determines. Mm. Or, or if you've got one great buyer who's prepared to pay more than everybody else, you sort of shake the sieve, if you like, and, and mm. the biggest rocks will still be in that sieve. So that's a really effective way of working out exactly what the market will pay for a particular mm -hmm. property. So when you get a lot of these agents that might be going pre-auction, it's because they haven't really fully worked out where they should price it to sell it. And so part of that whole auction process is that lead up is getting all that information from buyers so, and I think Phil DeFagley may have even talked about it mm. actually in our episode with him because it's something that, you know, I used to say when I was a selling agent, the auction campaign, an auction is not a four-week marketing process. Mm. It's really, in in my views, a good six weeks, a really well, you know, well-handled auction campaign. You've got to think of six weeks mm. because the thing is if it doesn't sell on the day, you need to have worked out exactly where it will sell so that you can price it accordingly immediately afterwards and within two weeks you'd sell it. So that's sort of basically the way it should work. So how do you, as an agent, um, a selling agent, uh, make sure you keep everyone interested? Because time's actually dangerous, right? If you're, mm. a, if I'm selling my property and I'm going, it's six weeks, and you know there's only a certain amount of period before you know Christmas where everyone switches off. I am, mm. um, and there's only so many buyers out there, and some are hotter than others. But if I drag this on for six weeks, I could lose good buyers. Like, how does a selling agent? make sure that they keep enough interest in the quality assets so uh -huh. the buyers don't go off and buy something else. Yeah, well, they don't have to worry so much with quality. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's the ones that true. aren't quality yeah, they have to worry about. But it's a really good question because really the auction campaign typically is actually only three weeks, right? So you've got the first mm. Saturday open house and second Saturday open house, third Saturday open house, and then your auction's on the fourth Saturday. So that's actually a three-week campaign. Mm -hmm. um, so when I say six weeks, it's like the, the week leading up to your first open house and then if it does pass in, you've got two weeks after. So that's the full six okay, weeks, yep. right? So therefore, three weeks is where they've got to harness all of that interest and they've got to keep everyone bubbling and and, and get them to the day, you mm. know. So, yes, that is something that a good, a good agent is really skillfully managing. And, you know, and I know, oh, God, years back I remember one year I had a situation where there was Easter and Anzac Day sort of within two weeks of each other and I ran a couple of five-week campaigns mm. and they were way too long. I mean, trying to corral those buyers, even though you had those two quite significant breaks in, in the market. So you can sort of certainly understand why agents, well, there's a lull, was there's a drop-off in listings around those periods of time because agents don't want to be running campaigns over those holiday periods. Well, that's what I'm looking at now, actually, that they try to rush it mm. to get it in before the school holidays. Yeah. And then it all went flat. There's mm. not enough interest. So then they pumped. Then they go, well, I can't do the auction in the middle of the school holidays or the week when they come back. Yeah. And I don't want to do the week when straight after the school holidays because – you know, it's still too soon. Yeah. They haven't had enough time to see it because they've been away. So this campaign's gone from a two-week to a six or seven-week well, for, an auction, for yeah. an auction campaign because, you know, they so really what, they keep moving the dates. Well, they moved it once, but they had to move <laughs> it four weeks. That makes me laugh. If they're pushing it out, yeah. that's a massively clear sign to buyers there's not much interest. Yes. When they bring it forward, which does happen. So I've had situations where, say, normal three-week campaign, there is so much interest and there are buyers throwing offers at the agent. The agent says, bugger this, I'm pulling the auction forward a week. So that usually means that the agent knows that pretty much that's the peak of interest and they're worried about let, letting it go any further that mm. might lose a few buyers. And also if they're heading into spring, for instance, where people are expecting more stock to come on the market, the agent's aware that other agents will have other stock, they'll have mm. other stock. 
they want to make sure the buyers are going to be taken off out of the market. Whichever buyer is going to buy that property is taken out of the market and that property is taken off the market before there's an influx. So there are there's quite a lot of thinking around by the more enlightened agents around exactly how they time their campaigns. Let's um, say I'm trying to sell a property though and let's say it's worth $2 million and it's a, I don't know, a house in Balmain and I go do an uh, inspection for someone who wants to sell and they also have a very similar product and they mm. want to sell for $2 million. How does a, an agent manage that conflict where they're selling two products at a very similar price point, um, but they've signed one up first? Do they just list both properties and yeah, say... of course they do. Yeah. They don't even think about it as a conflict. Yeah. And yeah. so if you're a seller, do you, <laughs> are you more, you know, is, is that a problem when you potentially go to an agent that's probably sewn up the whole area? Like they're potentially now I've got two properties that... They're yeah. going to show buyers. Look, it's interesting because you do have, there'll be sellers that would be worried about that and they want to go with the other agent that, yep. that isn't conflicted. But the reality is the buyers are the buyers. The buyers will be dealing with that agent and that agent just because, you know, that agent selling two properties at a similar price bracket doesn't mean that those buyers can be somehow corralled because you go with a different agent. So mm. it's an interesting sort of question. The reality is if two properties are on the market at the same time, buyers are going to compare them. Yep. I remember when we interviewed Marnie Cena from uh, McGrath over there in mm. Woodgee and Maroubra, yep. that area, and she was talking about that where she basically had two properties and she just made sure that one bought one and one bought the other. So, yes. so, you know, you have that sort of orchestration, if you like, or conducting, you know, mm. so there's the agent conducting the buyers like they're an orchestra, you know, mm. like you play this one, you play that instrument. I mean, you if you've got say you're a recruiter and you've got two jobs and you've got two great, you know, one prefers one, you are probably, mm. you know, trying to get the ends meet. And I think, you yeah. know, I think, you know, it makes sense from a seller's point of view to be doing that. In terms of um, price guides, like, you know, it's it's so hard to know what to, how to read price guides. I mean, what do you think's your kind of go-to <laughs> way of, is it knowing the agent before you know the price guide? Like, how do you, how do you actually know what a property's worth by looking at a price guide or do you not? Well, a price guide is an indication and, and that is all it can be taken as. And it, there is legislation um, in New South Wales, in every state basically. I mean, certainly in, in New South Wales, I'm obviously very familiar with that legislation. In, in Victoria, remember when we interviewed Tim Heaviside and he really talked through, um, you know, their requirement, the agent's requirements in terms of price guides. So look, they have to be able to demonstrate that they've done the research to be able to quote a certain price. But underneath all of that, there's so much that goes on. So mm. the reality is... Uh, that I look at a price guide and say, okay, well, that's an indication to me of what they put on the agency agreement. Now, let's face it, some agents will have a conversation with their owner that is goes along sort of these lines. Well, we need to generate competition in order to sell your property for the best price at auction. Mm. If I quote what we think it's worth, the buyers will add 10%. Yep. And that is going to discourage them from getting involved and getting ready to bid at this property because they won't want to pay 10% more than what we think it's worth. Mm. So therefore, I have to quote a lesser figure in order to get those buyers interested, mm. right? So it's all a game. Everyone's playing this game. And so they put it to the owner and the owner will agree or disagree, right? So, And not all agents do this, by the way. I'm just putting it out there that some agents do do this and some agents admit to me that they do this. Well, they're damned if they do, damned if they, they don't. They are. I, it, they're in a tough position. Yes. Um, and I, I 100% get it. Um, and, I, and this is why I say to buyers, right, you play your part in this too. You know, you don't tell the agent really what you're going to pay, do you? No. <laughs> you know? no. In fact, most buyers, I, I would hazard, don't even know what they're really going to pay until they get to the auction and start bidding anyway. There's um, nothing wrong with that. Well, I mean. there's a heap wrong with that, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's what this book is d designed to exterminate. Yeah. Um, there's a heap wrong with that. But this is the thing. Buyers don't even know what they're prepared to pay. Agents know that buyers don't even know what they're prepared to pay half the time. So, therefore, all this stuff's going on. They have to provide or create the conditions to let the auction, you know, work its magic and actually get the, the, price, the best price for the owner. And it might even be that working its magic is getting that highest interested party to make a whopping great offer prior. So mm. however it transpires, their job is to make that happen, create the circumstances where it happened. Underquoting is part of that. So you get a whole 
industry that, and I tell you, because I sat in the briefing rooms, you know, REI New South Wales ran a mm. whole, um, a whole roadshow on yep. the new laws back at the end of 2016. And, you know, you get agents that take it on and go, right, well, I'm just going to comply with the law and this is a requirement and I'll explain to buyers and all that sort of stuff. So you will get some buyer, some agents that will quote realistically. So therefore, if every buyer runs out and says, okay, I'm going to add 10% because they all underquote, well, it's actually not true. Some don't. Mm. So you get those that will actually have a conversation and explain really clearly to the buyers, this is why. This is why we believe this is this is mm. around the figure you need to be at. Now, obviously, we want competition, might go for more, but this is a reasonable expectation. Other agents will swear to you in the blue and, you know, swear <laughs> black yep. and blue yep. that, is that even a saying? But anyway, yep. swear till they're blue in the face yep. that, you know, that these comparables that they're using to justify their guide are truly comparable. But, you know, they're like nine months old or they're actually nowhere near as good as the actual property. So I think at the start you don't, you, you or at, when you've been looking for a while, you know. Mm, exactly. But if you've been just new into the market, yeah. you think, well, I looked at the, you know, the table at the open, Yeah, there's a few comparables. I think I'm going to get it for 1.6. Everyone's telling me 1.6. Yeah. And you go to the auction, it sells 1.9. Exactly. Because you, you know, you just have it and then you feel a bit disillusioned then you start shopping in a different area. You and, hate agents. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say um, it is the week before the auction and the agent's now saying, look, I think we just have to go to auction because the vendor needs to see how much interest there is in mm. the property um, and they're not going to take any offers prior because they just want to see how much interest there is and they're not sure whether they're going to sell it. You know, have, mm. do, you, do you think that's true or do you think that's just a, another way for the agent to encourage more people to come to the auction and just have a crack? I'd be surprised if an agent ever said they're not even sure whether they're going to sell it. Yeah, okay. because Because what the agent is trying to do is make you think they're going to sell it. Mm. So you've got to be there mm. because if you're not there and they sell it, you miss out on your dream home. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, I might have a conversation every now and then with an agent who fesses up to me that the owner is completely out of control on price. And so they know that I know how to handle that information and we'll have a conversation around, well, what are we going to do about that if, yes. if my client wants to buy it? Um, whereas the average buyer has got zero idea of how to handle that information and the mm. agent knows they don't know how to handle it. So the agent would never in a blue fit tell them mm. that. So... It's like when, you you know, the question, how many contracts have you got out? Love that one. It's just one of the dumb questions that really useless. Yeah. Um, but what are the good questions? Most by, <laughs> we had to read the book to get all the good questions. Yeah. There, oh, look, I'll give you one. I mean, so to give you an example, with the, how many contracts are out, it's like, well, I used to say four. Yes. I could have had 20, I'd yeah. still say four. I could have none, I'd say four. Four is like this non-threatening number mm. that, creates the idea that you're not the only idiot mm. that likes it, but at the same time there's not so much interest that you don't have a chance. Yep. You know, and this is the balance that that agents are trying to deal with. So it's like a, here's a question that a lot of people ask, oh, will they sell before auction? Now, buyers ask that because they sort of think that you should ask it mm. and they haven't really thought even, well, what am I going to do with the information if I get it? Am I ready to make an offer? Have I decided what it's even worth? So you're saying you shouldn't be saying those, well, asking just, those questions until you've asked these, answered these other questions. Exactly. Mm. And you should actually not ask a question unless you actually know what you're going to, what you specifically need to know and what you're going to mm. do with that information. So the more the cleverer question to ask mm. in that situation is once you've made your mind up, yep, I really like this property. Um, I know they're under quoting. I know what the recent sales are and I know pretty much what it's worth. Mm. I know what I'm prepared to push myself to because of X, Y, and Z in terms of its requirements for me, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera, all of that sort of stuff. I've had the building and pest done. I've had this done. I've had that, all the due diligence that I need to have done. Now that I'm committed and I know that I want to buy this property, I know where I'm prepared to go with that. Now I can have a conversation around making an offer. Yep. And then it's not, oh, will the, uh, you know, will the um, vendor sell prior? Because, what sort of vague answer are you going to get out of that? Yeah. You're it makes get... me just reflect sometimes <laughs> when, I've, uh, when I go travelling and we go to a market and, um, you know, I quite enjoy the whole, like, you know, you go around and just negotiate on things and, um, you know, you pick up a belt and then, you know, um, you start negotiating on it and say they want, you know, you know you got a, like ten, a tenth of what the price is and then you work your way back up. But if you don't actually know what you actually want to pay for it, they are way more skilled at this way than more. you. Yeah. And then you walk away and you're like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's a good deal or not. You've done no market research. You go around the other 
aisle and you see mm. the same belt for, yeah. you know, <laughs> for a fraction of the price. And so, um, yeah, I think it's kind of the same as this. As soon as you start saying what's the price or will they sell, if you haven't done your due diligence, you're just going to get directed into whatever channel that they want to direct you to. And that's a good analogy there about, you know, haggling in the market because I remember when I used to go and visit Rachel, my friend who lived in Hong Kong, right, and, you know, we'd go to the market and she was an ace haggler. I mean, mm. she was phenomenal, but she'd always say never haggle unless you actually want to buy it. Yeah. And this is the thing too that, that, that and I hadn't even thought of this until you just said that, to be honest, that, mm. you know, people do start negotiations for property before they've really decided whether they want to buy it or not. Yeah. Now, we talked with Simon Russell, remember, about the consistency effect. Mm. So you start doing that, all of a sudden you find yourself in a negotiation and you go, oh, hang on a minute, um, yeah. do I, oh, it's all very awkward. Some people actually buy without mm. really fully thinking through the, the ultimate question, do I want to buy it? Well, that's it because we've got a, um, I was reading about this recently, like a bargain hunter mentality. Like mm. sometimes people will buy because they think they're getting a good deal, not because it's a good investment, not because it suits their long-term dreams or goals mm. or whatever. It's just, it's a good deal. And yeah. that's not, it works with property. You can't buy lots of good deals. You can only buy one or two of them mm. um, and that's it. So you must, getting a good deal is not what you're looking to achieve. You're trying to get a good asset that yeah. grows. So um, I think that setting your price limit though, um, when should you be doing that? And then let's say you probably are under what you think it's going to sell for. How do you, you know, say it's okay to yourself that I am going to pay more than mm. I think it's worth because I really want the property. In my business, yeah. right, we have this what we call four pillars that you need to consider when you are setting a price. And the very first one is you've got to understand the quality of the asset. So this is about the quality in terms of its long-term potential because, and we talk about on this podcast mm. all the time, A-grade assets that do really well even when the market's tanked, you know. And so what I see is in a hot market, for instance, people pay A-grade prices for B and C-grade assets because of FOMO. Mm. So you've got to sort of think, well, hang on a minute, how would this one go in a cold market? How would this one sell? Would it be competitive? Would I want to buy it if if it wasn't a hot market? And, and that's a really important thing because if, no, I wouldn't, then don't push yourself on this one. You know, you might decide you're going to go at a certain level, but don't push yourself, right? What happens if the property's macro level, it's a great property, i.e. great street, great aspect, great frontage, let's mm. say, but there's things that are dragging it down because of it needs a good reno, it hasn't got green area and it needs green area, or there's things that are flawed about it that, and change, yeah, but it's still macro level. It's a good property. Do yeah, you that's still... that's part of asset quality for me. I look at asset to say, well, can I fix those things that are wrong yeah. with it, or can't I? Mm. And if I can't, then absolutely, it's a B or C. Not, you know, yeah. if if yeah, I can address those, then that, that's a great value add opportunity. Yeah, you know, but still, don't pay for potential. Pay for the quality of the asset. Yes. You know, so people pay for potential all the time. So, well, that's stupid. You might as well hang around and buy the one that's already done if you're paying for potential. Okay, yep. You know, so, so yes, if the fundamental quality of the asset is good, that's what you're paying for, not the potential. The next thing... Because then you start eating into your value add, right? Exactly right. So you're not actually... overcapitalizing. Yes. Mm. Well, yeah, and you... Yeah, exactly. You might not be overcapitalizing per se, but you might be cutting into that potential value add yeah. where you're going to make a profit. Yeah, so the growth. do you really want to do that? You know, and that's all the effort and stress and things like that. So, so but that's the next thing. Yeah. So the next thing is actually what is the property worth as it is now? Mm. So, so there's, what could it be worth in terms of how would this one grow in value compared to others in the area? You know, A grade will do better than yes. others. So that's sort of the future. Then, then there's the now, what is it worth now? You know, how mm. does it compare with what's been selling recently in this area now? You know, if, if I compare this to a renovated property, what's that cost of renovation? Do I, do I knock that off? Is that the way it prices it? So you've really got to ask all those questions and say, right, in this market, the way other properties are selling that are somewhat, re you know, similar then it should, you know, fit within this band. And so that's really clear to have because yep. that's your foundation. And if it's a great asset, yes, you might push yourself a little bit for it because mm. it's a great asset. Yep. And then on the other side of the equation, so the two objective measures and mm. the subjective measures, you've got how uniquely does it fit your requirements? Because you can have an A-grade property that actually doesn't suit you. Mm. So, yep. you know, fundamentally about whether it's right or not, if you're going to live in it, is 
how does it suit you now and for the future? You know, mm. how does it help you in your in your long-term goals as well? So, and how uniquely is that? How many other properties have sold that would have also fit the bill in a similar way, say, in the last six months? Mm. If there's lots, then you think, I'm not going to push myself so hard because, you know, there's a really good chance another one will come up. Yeah. But if it's like the only one that's been around for a year, you go, right, I have to push myself on this one because it's back to the drawing board if I don't get it. Yeah. Um, and then the last pillar is... is completely not only subjective, it's your your budget, your affordability, what you can borrow, what you can afford to pay back, all that sort of stuff, the equity yep. that you've got, those things are uniquely yours. Um, and obviously you can't forget them when you're setting your limit. Yeah. So let's say, um, I think that's great. I mean, getting a good asset, if it's not, then you're, you can, you know, you're convincing yourself to buy the wrong property. So that's good. The, you know, the fitting your lifestyle, you could say, yep, no, it's perfect. And there's not many of them, so that's good. So I should be going for this and maybe I should push. But then how, if you then know that still that someone else is going to potentially mm. kind of overspend and someone else is probably going to value it more, yep. how do you kind of, because at some point it could be the market's moving, yep. you could just be shooting yourself in the foot because it could take another year. So, so how a, far should you go over your budget? So there's a process that we go through. So once you've sort of got those four things really clearly thought out mm. in your mind, then you think, okay, I am or I'm not going to push myself, yep. right? So I am going to push myself. Then it's like, well, we've got the baseline of where it should sell. Mm. It should. However, we know it's going to be competitive. We yes. know it's an A-grade property, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore we can think, well, there's a good chance it will go over that. Mm. So then I start the process of saying, right, at what price will you kick yourself the next morning if you don't buy it? Because this is the only way to really determine your unique premium. And it's like, so if it's $100,000 more for argument's sake, is that, would you kick yourself? Oh God, no, I wouldn't want to pay that. I'd freak out. I'd just, I'd be so uncomfortable. Well, great. That's too much. Let's go 50 grand over. What does that feel like? Oh, oh, I have to think about that. Okay, well, let's go to 30 grand. Oh, God, no, I, I would feel sick if I'd let someone pay it for that price. Okay, what about five grand? So we but actually. When are you asking these questions? Is it the night before, the morning of, we, or two days before? Well, I reckon you need a few days of this ping pong that go, particularly with a couple, because yep. there's a lot of ping pong that goes back and forward. And it's it until it lands and you're both comfortable with it, and you, you sit on that price and you go, I will walk away if it goes for a dollar more. And you just know that in the core of your being, when you know that, that is your walk away price. You have to stick to that. But what I actually say is add an odd number on top. Yeah. Because what the worst case scenario is, is another bidder gets to your limit before you you do, or they you get to your limit and you go, I said, I'm done. And, you, and you're hoping the other bidder puts 20 grand on top of your limit, for instance, yeah. but they only put one. Yeah. And that's hard because then you think, oh, great. So you need to give yourself that tiny edge that really you've pushed yourself over your upper limit yeah. so that you go, you give it that one more bid and then you go, I have answered that question. You know, would one more bid buy it? Now I know. No, yeah. it didn't. Or yes, it did. Sometimes it does. So let's say it's the Thursday, the Saturday's on a, uh, the auction's on a Saturday. Um, and on the Thursday they come to an agreement and they think it's, I don't want to spend more than a dollar over $2 million, mm. right? And then you say, look, add a little bit on the mm. Odd number, seven, so three, two two million and yeah. seven, right? Do you find though that if it is the right property though, that people start to change the next day, and then they, in your experience, that they do start to lift that two million as they get closer to the auction because of that fear of loss, yeah, and it starts to rise to a higher level. Absolutely, yeah. some some people do. Some people are really firm on it. Some people do, and then and then they go backwards and they go up and go down. Mm. And so we all talk them through that. The thing is that that has to be thrashed out before the auction because if when it's thrashed out during the auction, really bad decisions get made, mm. right? And I watch it because when I'm when I'm at auctions, when I'm not bidding, or even if I am, but particularly when I'm not, I love it because I'm not I'm not vested in. I'm really purely observing, and I see people and I see the conversations between couples in particular, and I think they've got not even minutes; they've got seconds yep. to be talking through. Or oh, how many have we seen? Or do you reckon that you know this is the last one? How long before we're going to have to do it again? Oh, we have to rent. I have to. The, you know, all these sort of uh, 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 yes. stuff going on. And it's like going one, going twice, you know. Yeah. Uh, okay. And all that does is give a green light to the other buyer who's just done exactly the same thing to get to that last bid. And they're yeah. going, well, that person's close. Uh, one more might buy it. Should we, should we, should we, should we? You know, yeah. this whole thing goes on. I've seen bids, I've seen auctions go up $100,000 yeah. in $1,000 bids with this sort of conversation and this sort of pressure. 
And if someone had been clear about it and known that they were prepared to walk away at sort of 50 grand in the middle of that or whatever, and they just hit it with a 10, it would have just taken the air out of that and ended it. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. I was at an auction recently and it was exactly that. You know, you had a mother there with the baby or younger child in the hand bidding. Husband was, you know, very, you know, sweat on the forehead. Mm. Um, the other couple, you know, she was bidding as well. Um, and, you know, two younger kids um, and they got to like one five, five or something. And then they just slowly just added a thousand, a thousand and it was dragging out. And you, they were both well over their limits. So horrible. They were stressed. It was, it was, it was, mm. it was actually um, like stressing me because mm. I was like, you guys are way over mm. what you think you are. Like it went up to over one six. And then this one lady with the kid in the arm who was like, it was not probably a great place to be bidding with a child in your arm, like no. trying to pull your hair. Do and... you not take your kids when you have to bid? <laughs> um, and then she thought they want they were going once, going twice. You know, she's going to win it, and then bang, a little stealth bidder in the side came <laughs> in, and then oh, like put no. in another ten thousand on her bid. Breaking, yeah. And then the auction just closed, finished, and so mm. they went through this over their limit and things like. Luckily, they didn't buy it, so you know, but. You know, it is quite a, you know, I think they probably might have bought them now maybe, let's say, because it's been, you know, six months maybe, so hopefully they have. But it was interesting. So they hadn't made that decision kind of prior. At mm. what point, though, do you kind of see where to stop people then and how do you stop people when they, they come to you and they say, Veronica, I want to spend 2.3 on this, mm. but you know it's only worth two. How do you give them the confidence to just Not, keep looking mm. and just, no, don't you, you're spending too much. Um, and because it's, I've got a client, an email on Monday from a client and, you know, I could feel the deflation mm. because they did miss out. Um, and how do they kind of re-motivate themselves to get out back on there? And what, what often happens, there's sort of two parts to my answer to that. First of all, is what happens to buyers when they miss out? You know, it is absolutely deflating and, and they start to think this, oh, I'm never going to buy. It's almost like they go into two camps. One, one just dies for covering us. That's it. I'm out of the market, bugger it. I'm just gone. I'm gone. And I'll lick my wounds and when I feel like I'm, I'm ready for battle again, yeah. I'll, I'll re-emerge. And in which case, if the market's been moving, it's like, oh, that's a shame because you just lost out on a bedroom. Um, and the other type of buyer gets, you know, very much, um, I've got to pay whatever. You know, those buyers, those buyers are paying whatever. I've just got to pay whatever. I've got to give up. I, I, yeah. I won't do any due diligence. I'm yep. not going to do building and pest inspection. It's going to go to whatever auctions on. It's going to pay whatever. And it's going to pay because, 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 you know, and this yes. sort of FOMO and this sort of this mad um, panic is, is kicking in. And I've seen this and I've had conversations with people and, and, and I know that, and then they go, oh, I'm going to auction, but I'm not going to bid. And I'm like, I bet you are because you're in that mindset of you're so panicked and you just missed out and you got that pain of you felt the loss, you know, mm. loss aversion we talk about. You felt the loss and you're so wanting to alleviate that pain that you will go for the sugar hit, as you often call things mm. sugar hits. That's a sugar hit of winning something and then mm. go, oh, oh, I've just gone through a turnstile and I mm. can see where I came from but I can't go back there. Mm. And so what often happens is that, that, that buyers, they do, they just seem to think that this is a game that I'm losing and the only way to win it is to buy something. And they lose complete and utter sight on what that something really needs to be mm. for them to have their greater goals met. And that's a real danger. So when people come to me when they want to pay overs, I'm like, well, we, let's work out why. You know, let's go back mm. to those four pillars. You know, what is it worth? 
How good is this asset? How uniquely does it fit your needs? And what is your budget? Okay, so your budget might be more. We don't necessarily want to unnecessarily spend that budget Mm. just because you can. Let's be more strategic around it. And because you're emotional and you just want to throw everything at it because you're sick of looking and you're sick of missing out, we can be there and actually protect you from your own emotions. Um, You know, and there's been countless times where we've actually saved clients hundreds of thousands of dollars over what they would have paid left to their own devices. Yeah, so they would have went to the auction and paid two, three or whatever mm. to win it and they probably would because it's a super hot market and someone's overpaying, right? Yeah. So, But you've been able to just kind of stop them there. But even if I guess there's probably has been times where a client has said to you um, that they still want to overspend. And that's okay. You know, eyes wide open is our motto. Yeah. You know, so, so I'm like, right, if you want to pay overs and you've got to be really clear why for you that's important to mm. do. And as long as you are really clear, and I've had plenty of clients give me a, a limit that's way over what I would recommend for mm. the particular property, but I do, I'm really confident that they've absolutely understand the pros and cons and they know why they're doing it. So they can't sort of turn around and go, oh, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have done that, you know. Mm. And what's the biggest risk there? Time, do you think that they have to sell it in a short mm. space of time? That, yeah. So if, the, if it is something they're going to go live in for 30 years or something like that or 20 years and... They've well, really thought that through. <laughs> There's two issues there. There's the if it's a not an A grade asset, the longer you own it, the worse off you are because it will lag yep. against the market. So it will fall away. Even even a half a percent um, compound annual compounded in, um, growth rate Good difference yep. translates over a decade, say even on a million dollar purchase, into hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. That's half a percent difference. Mm. And, you know, that it's actually massive, the difference over yep. time um, between A, Bs and C grade properties. So that's your first long term. If you term. are going to do it, only do it for literally something that will perform the best in that suburb sort of thing. Yeah, although people still make decisions around their home because that's what they want. They just want a home and that's mm. okay as long as they understand and, look, to be honest, they won't feel the pain of that until turn it, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the track when they do yep. go to downsize and then they go, oh, yeah, I'm sort of not really in as good a position I could have been, but let's face it, they've had 10, 20, 30 years of yep. living in a home they love, so, you know, they're prepared to offset that. Um, but the thing is that if you if your circumstances do change, and look, let's face it, some people do, you know, and enough people sell at a loss in this country to suggests to me that people's circumstances must change mm. and then they have to sell, you know. Um, and, you know, I've met plenty of people who've circum- who weren't banking on certain things happening and they do, like a divorce or... Well, for their child. Or, or, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was with a the other day, so oh, I've got two kids, 10 and 12. And, and then they have one, twins. One, that, um, <laughs> one that's three months. I was like, all right, something happened. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah, no, we weren't planning the third and it came along and, um, yeah. you know, and so, you know, life is from, you know, divorces, obviously, mm. that's a huge one, you know, um, you know, family issues, you know, parents have to live with you and yeah. you haven't factored that in. I mean, even kids, I, I, I'm, you know, obviously we're at that stage. For us to imagine what it's like to have two kids at 10 years old into a house and what the house needs, mm. it, I just don't know, right? No. And so how do I know, like, what's too much space, what's not enough space, what's how much green area do we need, um, how much do mm. we, you know what I mean? And, and I think Changes. it's yeah. so hard to for young families to, to see what life they, what requirements they need from housing mm. as kids get bigger. Yep. How do you, how do you, when you've got that young couple in front of you and they've got, say, you know, a newborn or a one on the way or something like that, how do you help them really think through what this, how this house needs to evolve for what they want in the future? It's, it's a really good point because one of the things that I guess my benefit when I started as a buyer's agent, you know, I had a baby and she was a year old, my daughter, and um, but I had been a sales agent for six years. And when you're a sales agent, you do get to experience why people move and what they like about their homes and what worked for them when the kids were preschool versus in primary school versus in high school. And and you do, when you're talking to parents at those different stages, you, you hear there's lots and lots of things that, that you'll hear. Like the, the, the toddler phase is the open plan living is big. You know, they want to basically be able to see from the kitchen outside, um, living areas all connected, you know, no separate living areas. Everything's open, although they do want somewhere to hide their toys. Yep, <laughs> um, yep. And a bath and a bathroom close to the kitchen, right? So that's basically make, makes witching hour a hell of a lot, hell of a lot easier than it mm. is if you've got a no bath or be a bath upstairs or, you know, so there's all these sort of practicalities that, that you need when you've got little kids. And then the laundry's the, not okay? 
No, and they want a laundry. You can have a bathroom, what, laundry yeah. with a bathroom in it. Yeah. <laughs> they want a laundry that, yeah, so they want a bathroom that looks like a bathroom. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when the baby, when actually when it's a baby, yes, you can wash them in a laundry tub. That's, That's what I was thinking, convenient. yeah. Yeah, but then when they're toddlers, yeah. you want to be able to bath them and the laundry tub <laughs> won't cut it. Um, so... Then when they get to school, they get a bit noisier. You know, they they got their television they like to watch, or when the kids are all over there, noisy, and mm. and you start to think, oh, another living area would be really good. Another, mm. you know, but not too far away. You still got to be able to keep an eye on them, you know. And so, all of a sudden, that additional space, and also the kids, you know, little kids love to actually sleep together in the same room, but a lot mm. of people seem to think that they all need their own rooms. But mm. you know, little kids do love it. And yeah. but then if you got kids of different genders, for instance, or they don't get on, mm. then, you know, as they start to get in a school, you think, mm, I might need to start separating these kids. Yep. Um, so then, you know, your needs change in that way as well. And look, the other thing too that everyone talks about when you've got toddlers and little kids is having all the bedrooms on the same level. Mm. And then when you've got teenagers though, you really want a parent retreat. You don't want to be anywhere near the kids, you know, yep. when the kids are teenagers. But you do want an alarm on the front door so they can't sneak in and sneak out. <laughs> yeah. But So there's all these sort of different phases in terms of the bedroom layout, where the bathrooms are, where the living rooms are, how many living rooms you've got. Um, you know, a pool, for instance, a lot of people talk about a pool becomes more and more important as the kids get older because they want to feel like they will bring their, fr their friends home and the ha home mm. can be a hub and so the kids aren't out always elsewhere. So there's all these sorts of things that become really important um, and, and close to public transport when you've got teenagers as well, when they're old enough to go out for themselves so that you don't become mum's taxi or dad's taxi. Um, yeah. So these things you don't even think about when the kids are in primary school, you know, mm. not out socialising on their own, they're not on public transport, you know, and you certainly don't think about having separate living areas where you can't see what the kids are doing or hear what the kids are doing when you've got toddlers, mm. you know. So all of that stuff really evolves. So when someone's looking at the 20, 30 home when they've got little kids, yeah. they won't consider enough of the teenage stuff or the primary school stuff. Um, and so I guess that's what's really important is to really project yourself out there and really understand what those parents in that demographic, what you will be saying you need then. It's interesting you say that because you, unless you've actually had these conversations with parents that are, you know, got teenage kids mm. and have bought the wrong house, because the ones who have bought the right house are like, oh, I didn't even think that was a problem. Yeah. You know, we always had a bus stop out the front and yeah. kids just got to school, right? <laughs> um, or, you know, we always had two living mm. areas or we... And so I think that's a really interesting insight because that's why I think maybe the best buyers agents out there, a lot of them potentially have had that selling experience mm. because, you know, maybe that's where they've got that insider knowledge of what really families really want. Let's say you've come from different, not saying there can't be good buyers agents from other backgrounds, but it that, definitely helps. That could be, a, mm. you know, one of the key value adds that, you know, do you find that a lot of good buyers agents who have come from that background, that's one of the key learnings they've got from being a real estate agent? Yeah, absolutely. And they do they do understand motivations for selling. And so therefore, if they're yeah. worried about, like in, for me, my, my pure reason for living really at the moment, <laughs> in a way, not my pure reason, but one very big reason for me being on the planet is to help is this people. this podcast. This podcast. Help people, be, <laughs> help people buy without regrets. Yeah. You know, and so when you help people sell and you find out, well, why are they selling? What was it about the house? Did they simply outgrow it? And that's just a natural process. Yep. Or has it been that it's been like a little thorn in their side ever since they bought it? Um, you know, there's there's quite a lot of that insight that does come out of that. But you've got to not be a transactional person. And there's still a lot of buyers agents that are quite transactional. You know, mm. it's like, oh, you tell me you want one of these. Okay, I'll go and find one of those for you. They're not actually thinking about what is it about the home that you need. And and also a lot of buyers agents really focus on the investor market and they've got no idea about any of this stuff. Yeah. And this is important for investors to understand when they're buying as well. It's not just owner-occupiers. So so that is a real insight that, that a buyer's agent that does both understands mm. what needs to perform as a good investment from the numbers perspective, but from this side of the livability perspective, because that's side. the stuff that really, yeah, turns something into a, from an A, well, I guess that's the characteristics that lends itself to an A-grade property. I think it's... um. It's a good point. And there are obviously buyers agents that do focus a lot on investments, but really I think the best ones that do that are coming at from a home buyer mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're so they've got that home buyer really knowledge, experience, what do people really want? And then they're applying that to exactly going and buying good investments. But a lot of in, 
out there is they're just buying what are great investments on yield or mm. great investments because they're cheap and they're easy to buy yep. and the cash flows are not going to be mm. too expensive and um and you know that's that's where the problems i think rise but i think that you yeah. can be a buyer's agent that focuses a lot on investors but only if you've got that kind of home buyer mindset i guess well it's because if you don't then you're not really focusing on the quality of the asset mm. and this is what I guess bothers me about a lot of, we've gone right off auction ready, but anyway, <laughs> what bothers me about a lot of um, property advisors, investment property advisors mm. is that they, you know, they're doing all this research about where to buy. They've not a lot of research of specifically what to buy. Mm. And, and I think that that's massively missing in that. So let's go back to auction ready because you mm. rightly pulled well, us up there. Yeah. Um, in terms of though, like, Let's say I, I have got your book, actually. I've got the PDF. So if anyone wants Don't to- you give it away. If yet. anyone wants 70% <laughs> off the purchase price, um, not the 30%. Chris is, Chris is flogging the-, uh, the, the, the <laughs> <laughs> I'll just make an extra 40%. Version. Yeah. version. I'll um, uh, yeah, just put, upload that onto uh, piratebay.com. <laughs> but um, no, let's say I do read the book, and I will. Um, <laughs> I thought you said you had. I've read the chapters, the overview, so I haven't read the whole book. It's, All right. it's, a, it's a lengthy book. Um, and you only sent it to me a not couple of days long, ago. Not too long, though, readers. No. <laughs> Uh, 134 pages or something. So yeah, I think so. Something yeah, something like that. Like that. Um, yeah, so you can you can digest it, you know, in a night or two. Um, is that going to be enough knowledge for me to, you know, really go out and do it myself, or do you think it's going to give me 50 percent of the way there, 80 percent of the way there? Do you still think at the end of the day I am going to still need a professional? Because <laughs> of course, <laughs> because you know, and that's one of the problems with reading, right? Like yeah. learning is. You, you, there's still a lot where human element comes in and then tailors that advice to your personal circumstances yeah. and then guides you. So do you think it's it'll give you a great foundation, but you're still at the end of the day going to go and have to seek great advice? You are going to do a hell of a lot better if you read the book and do it yourself than if you don't read the book and do it yourself. And yep. let's face it, most people are still doing it themselves. Mm. Um the book is really, you know, it's it's a culmination of all my experience and knowledge and thinking and, uh, around it, but it's also all my observations about people shoot themselves in the foot. They really do stuff it up for themselves, and over and over and over, I see this. Mm. So this is that that is really what's led me to write this book because it's like, well, if you read and understand this stuff, you are less likely to shoot yourself in the foot than you yeah. are if you don't have any knowledge of this. So you mm. can do a hell of a lot better job by reading it. Obviously, you know, to go to an expert such as you know myself or one of my team, you get all of that expertise and insights and intel and ability to think on our feet and and know what to do in different situations. And and also in my business, like God, I, every week we're pre we're presented with some experience that we may never have encountered before. Yeah. But we've got collectively enough knowledge and experience to be able to go. You know what? This would be the best part of action path of action now. Mm. And so that's the thing that an individual buyer is never going to ever 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 get because no. you can't physically buy the thousands of properties that gives you that level of expertise. So, and I think just the way that our brains work, I think we um, can only process so much information at a time. And then you're then buying with a partner, and that mm. partner is also trying to process that information. And they've got different levels of experience and knowledge, yeah. and fears and worries and desires. And, um, you know, and to have that independent person to manage that, um, I find that with financial advice and even broking and things like that, it's, it's kind of being there to, 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 to let them hear out everything that they've got to say, um, you know, and really talk it through and, you know, kind of be play devil's advocate and things like that. Even if they've read the book or they've done, you know, you know, read lots of content and things like that, they haven't got that person to direct them in mm -hmm. that conversation. Um, and obviously we're working with a buyer's agent at the moment, um, and whenever he finds like a little bit of a hole in our thought process, he's, you know, and, and rightly he's, he's asking us about it. Mm. And I can feel like actually we're hiding, hiding our head in the sand on this. We don't really <laughs> want to talk about this. Like ignorance yeah. is bliss. Yeah. Um, and even though, you know, we talk about this stuff and I, you know, read about and learn about it and help people do it, mm. I can still find myself self-sabotaging. Well, you know, look, I've sold a couple of properties recently and you know, this is interesting because what I've realised myself, one of them I actually got my team, some of my team, not my entire team, but some of my team, I actually sought advice at the pointy bit of negotiation, the point at which I needed to say to the agent, basically, yes, I'll sell effectively. Mm. And it was a bit less than I wanted. Um, the agent did a great job. She actually really wrapped it up really well. But I had to give her 
the green light before she could do that. And I knew that. I knew that much. But I was holding back. My elephant was going rampant, you know, so there was this sort of fear around that. And so my team sort of helped me stop focusing on what was happening then and there and and pull back and remember the reasons why I was selling in the first place. What can you do when you sell this property? Mm. Can you still achieve what you wanted to achieve when you sell this property, which is actually to renovate my home? And the fact is yes. And so therefore it was reminding me um, of why I was doing it. Mm. And thank God for that because I was in that that pointy you know, part of the whole yes. decision-making process and my elephant was going off. And, mm. and even though I know everything I know, mm. I still was on the cusp of making a really poor decision. And at that point you still, and, and which made it probably should have been easier, you actually had an agent that you trust. Yes. Because you've, you know, worked mm. with that person for a long time. Yeah. You really do have a mm. high level of trust. Yep. Um, and, you and know, a high most, level of engagement too because she yeah. could speak to me as a professional. Yes. But, but my owner-occupied, sorry, my, my, my own personal emotions mm. because it was my property. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I just think that's a, it's, it's, it's very interesting that you know, that's really where the value is. You know, yes, the knowledge, yes, the experience, mm. but, you know, that's all very valuable and negotiation and the skills and the strategies and all that sort of stuff. But it's that sounding board to guide mm. you through up to auction day. Um, and, and beyond. <laughs> yeah, and I mean on that auction. Final point, though, you know, because we've got to wrap this up. But mm. should the should the buyer go to the auction, um, or do you really think that they could leave that to the professional, sit <laughs> in their car, just don't even bother coming, go get a coffee, um, just let me get this job done, or do you think that you know there's no harm them coming along? Do you remember Damien Cooley back in episode two said that? no, you should never take your client. And <laughs> I don't agree. I like my okay. client to be there. And and that comes back to the, our uh, ethos, which is eyes wide open. I want them to see what happens. I, I actually feel really uncomfortable when a client's not there. Mm. Um, so, yes, I think they need to be there, fully briefed, you know, understanding what's going on, understanding the, the variability of what can happen at auctions as well. And even though... You know, I can read it and I understand. I have to think on my feet and I won't have time to explain what we're doing in the middle of the auction to the client either. So we sort of have to preempt fair amount what may or may not happen. Um, but I like them to be there. Mm. Mm. And let's say a client, because this is happening quite a bit at the moment, my clients are, you know, they're going out and they're doing the research. Like sometimes I'll suggest clients to use buyer's agents, which I always do. But, you know, there's affordability. There's maybe just mm. a confidence I want to do it myself. Um, you know, they're already invested in the process and they just yeah. want to use how, I mean, how crazy do you think it is though? Like when people do come and they, they do fall in love with the property, like how much should they just use a buyer's agent just for that? Protection. <laughs> yeah. For that auction side. Like, you know, I guess it's how much, how bad can people get it wrong, I guess. And how. Well, I can get, important. they can get it really wrong because the thing is that once you start bidding it, it even when. You know, when if I'm watching one of my team and I think to myself, oh, I'd like to, I'd do it differently, mm. you know, and we've all got our different styles and we're also thinking differently. We're also, you know, got various um, tactics and strategies that we're, we're employing. And I think to myself, oh, I wouldn't do that. There's no way in a million years I can interject or interrupt. It's yeah. started. Once it starts, it's like an avalanche. It's happening. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be able to, you know, you can put various things yeah. in place to yeah. sort of direct the snowfall maybe. But at the end of the day, it, it it's happening. Once you start the process, you can't then start thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? You know, I, I shouldn't have, oh, God, I'm, you know. All that thinking then takes over in, and your ability to think carefully and, and clearly, you know. So that's a really difficult thing. So th- there's two ways. point like- because I think it's not a game of chess, is it? It's, it's not like you've no. got your three minutes to think it through. It's happening right now. And I think a lot of people will think through, I can bid at auction. It's easy for me yeah, to say. Yeah, I'm confident. I can do 1.1. Conf- yeah. But, you know, I don't know how to bid, but that's not part of it, right? No. There's so many levels on top of that that you just don't know. See, the auctioneer, we haven't even talked about auctioneers, and I do mm. encourage all of you, if you're listening to this, to go back to those episodes I mentioned earlier on and listen to those auctioneers talk about how they create you know, the whole environment during an auction and they create momentum and they they, they are practised. Mm. They are absolutely practised at this. And you are not. 
and you don't even know how practiced they are. I can recognize it because I know the ones that practice and ones that don't practice. So some mm. of them are really crap, actually. But, you know, as a general um, general punter doesn't know the difference. Um, but they are all auctioneers are trying to get momentum and most punters fall into this little rhythm and pattern and actually play along. Mm. There's very few that know how to disrupt an auction and you can't disrupt it and be disruptive. You've got mm. to disrupt it in a really charming way. Um, so it is a very, very f- difficult art to to, um, to perfect. And back to your question about, well, should you engage a buyer's agent? To be quite honest, there are two ways that buyer's agents t- um, can work with people that come to them. There's just when you bid. And that's not enough. Just giving someone your limit and saying, okay, can you bid for me? You know, right. Yeah, sure. Oh, look, I'll do it if somebody really wants to pay me the money and do it. But I do warn them that we need to have a full understanding of the background of this property, the background of the sale, the agent, the likely mm. other buyers, their circumstances, what it's actually worth, what it's really worth to you. We need to advise you and help you set your limit because if you've set it by yourself, you probably want to jump in in the middle of the auction and tell me to bid more mm. and that's going to blow your cover. And, you know, all of these strategic things that that have to be done through a complete and full due diligence process yep. so that you absolutely know what you're doing and are confident with whatever limit you set and why you're doing it or whether we can find a reason why you shouldn't buy the thing in the first place and save you even more money, you know, that makes for so much more powerful bidding than if you just basically give me a limit and pay me whatever it is or pay me as a, as a uh, you know, appearance fee. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're just rocking up to a fight just with a knife, right, and you just have to use that and see how you go. Mm. But if you've kind of done all your due diligence and everything like that, maybe you've got, you know, better tools in your armoury and, oh, yeah. you know, you know how to use them mm. and who to attack first and things like that. And I think it's from a, a good auctioneer like, you know, um, you know, out there would take the same approach. Yeah. You know, they know that they're not just doing 12 auctions today. They've got 12 individual auctions. Mm. They're going to have to, you know, focus on different buyers. They're probably prepping themselves for every auction a Absolutely. little bit differently. Yeah. Um, and they know exactly how to, they're a true professional. They're not just there just to sell the property and just, you know, go through the, the motions. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of buyers agents, well, a lot of people just bidding for you. And that's why you probably shouldn't just get someone to bid for you either. No, if you're do not it yourself. Do it I mean, yourself. quite frankly, they'll yeah. do just as good a job. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Veronica, can you please help our listeners out here? Can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I've got a good auction, Dumbo. I've got loads of them, by the way. I shared a few in previous episodes, but this is one that I saw. This is actually an agent auction, Dumbo. So competitive auction, but the reserve was obviously higher than the highest bid. Right. And I was bidding at it, but I was the underbidder. So we were over my, my client's limit. It was held by the next bidder, and they were only three grand over my limit. So pretty close, but... My limit had that extra seven grand put into it. Um, my clients set that limit. They did stretch themselves. You know, they're obviously disappointed, but they were happy to walk away at that price. So I was just watching at that point and I thought, well, this, this should be selling, should be selling. And all of a sudden there's this bit of a commotion because, oh, we got a late registration. That's what they While said. While the auction was on. While the auction was on. Now I've seen this happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a registration during the auction, very rare, but it does happen. But auctioneers say it sometimes. They're like, don't worry, you can still register. Yeah. And I'm like, it's surely they, you're not going to register now. And they can, but yes, I've seen it. Here's your credit, here's your um, driver's licence, right? Yeah. So the thing is, yeah, if you think you're going to bid, first of all, register. But the thing is, it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a trick. Now, this is something I hadn't uh. really, really, in the middle of it, I realised what was going on, right? So what was going on? So the highest bid is there. It's been competitive. We're out. My limit was well over what I thought it was worth. My clients, with their eyes wide open, gave me more money. And I was like, this is not the sort of property I I encourage you to push yourself, but they wanted to for lots of their very good reasons. This guy was over it. Um, He starts to get agitated. He's like, well, what's happening here? What's happening here? Oh, no, sir, sir, there's, there's just, we've got a late registration. This guy, I'd noticed him during the registrations because, of course, I watch people register. He he went up to the agent. He he shook his head and he mumbled a bit and I couldn't really hear what was going on. Then I saw he was outside during the auction. The auction, the auction was held inside. He was outside, I noticed, wandering around. The next minute he's come in sort of the, the kitchen door and he's in the kitchen supposedly registering to bid, right? 
while this is all going on, I'll say, look, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, the auctioneer was very polished in how this was handled. Very polished. Um, very re- rehearsed um, dialogue around this, right? Oh, God. About, you know, we took a late registration, et cetera, et cetera. What was really happening was the agent was on the phone to the vendor trying to get the reserve dropped so they could sell it. Now, it was a bit of a high reserve, of course, but this was a uh, like a Dummy. distraction to get the highest bidder, you know, because if they couldn't get that reserve dropped, that agent was going to have to go to that highest bidder and try to get more money out of them. So who do you think this guy was? I think they paid him 50 bucks just to turn up. I was going to say, where do you get these jobs? I might this do that. Is, this is what a bit I of think. fun on weekends. This is what I think. Um, the guy, you know, registers, but sort of hidden behind the, in the kitchen. You could sort of see this was going on, but he wasn't really, he didn't come into the room or anything. Um, Got to be illegal, right? Uh, I don't know if this is illegal, to be quite frank. I think this is, this is a game and, and I watched this and I was horrified because it's a game and and I could see what they were setting it up for, that if they couldn't get that reserve drop, the agent was going to have to go to the highest bidder, get them to increase. And this was creating a sense of, well, there's still other interest, mm. right? Now, that buyer supposedly registered and did not bid. Why would you bother registering yes. at the pointy end of an auction and then not bid? So I could see, I, I was, I was gropable, mm. <laughs> but it, look, it didn't make any difference to me at the end of the day because, you know, we were out, but, but, but I. The dumbo would have been if you just kind of bidded more because you thought yeah. against this dummy bidder that's not even yeah. a bidder. Yeah. Um, and it, even if they didn't, well, they, cause they didn't bid, did they? But no. if they did bid, then you would have bidded against the dummy bidder, but they couldn't it, have possibly bid. No, they were never going to bid. Yeah. It was designed to make that highest bidder think that there could be more competition. Oh, yes. And if the, the agent came in after speaking to the vendor, said, look, we're not quite at the reserve. Look, this person's here. I want to give you the first right of refusal. Look, you know, if you increase it to X, then we're definitely going to get on the market. There's no further bidding. You'll actually get to buy it at that price. You know, and, and so they might do that also if they felt the highest bidder had more money in them. Mm, yep. Yeah. So it's the, you know, it's it's a... Risky strategy. Very risky strategy. But well, not that risky because the highest bidder is there and their bid is recorded. Mm. Like this is the first time I've seen this and I am 100% certain that this was a very deliberate ploy. And this is when people say they're going to go to auction and I'm going to try it myself, see Mm. how I go. This sort of stuff can go on and you wouldn't know what the hell's going on. So the Dumbo could be if that highest bidder had actually then increased their bid on the back of this sort of ruse. Yeah, I think it's just, it's interesting because at that point in time, you're trying to figure out what's going on. Mm. And that just shows that you don't know. Yeah. You don't know. And like even you, you, you haven't seen that before, so it was something new. But most things you've probably seen before. Most things. And so you <laughs> probably don't get shocked enough. But, you know, there's so many different things that could happen. You've probably seen 999 of them, right? And yeah. most people haven't seen many of them. Mm. And so, you know, I was at an auction recently and, um, you know, I was like, why isn't this sold? Like, why isn't it on the market? Why aren't they, they sold? This is a great price. Like, I thought it was more than I actually thought it was. And then they went out the back, spoke to the vendor, came back out and said, it's not on the market yet. Mm. And it passed in. And the auction just went dead. Yeah. And I was like, this is something's gone wrong here. Something's happened. Like what? And everyone just walked out deflated. Mm. No one bought it. Yeah. Um, it did sell and it did sell for more than it did. Um, so the agent, obviously the, the vendor was holding fire. I, I want more than this. And they ended up getting a better price. Mm. But, you know, it was just a really interesting, because I think everyone was shocked why this hadn't sold. Yeah, nobody knows what to do. Yeah. Yeah, although and somebody it, did, they paid more money. Well, they did, yeah, and it, it, but it just, in the there was no like, you know, this is, sorry, it's passed in, mm. it just went, like, stopped on the on the money. And so, <laughs> you know, and, and what would you do there as a buyer? And so I'm worried about the buyer there because the buyers, you know, they've ended up going to pay more. Did they buy it on the day of auction or sort of in the next week or so? It was after, it was a week, yeah. week after. So the thing is that there could have been an opportunity for the highest bidder to take advantage of the fact that there was pressure for, yeah. on the vendor as well. And because you got in, in New South Wales, you got up to midnight on the day of auction to sell under auction conditions. I think in Victoria, you've got another three days. Yeah. Um, you know, so every state's different once again. Uh, so in, in New South Wales, for instance, if that happens and it, you know, like I bought property afterwards, that sort of yeah. scenario, and I've actually paid less. Yeah. So... 
sometimes a brand new buyer comes in and pays more. The reality is usually if it's been competitive and the, and the owner is completely out of control, it's very unusual they get more money afterwards. But, yeah. but the opportunity there was for the buyer really wanted to buy it to actually, you know, if they'd done their pricing research, if they actually understood what it was worth and they knew their walkaway price and it was within that limit, then they can play within that limit and still negotiate. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I think there's, I don't know what happened after, but mm. I mean, I just saw it sold, you know, for 60 grand more than they actually, they were kind of, I can't believe it didn't sell on the day for mm. that price. So it's interesting because it was just another like learning where they just wouldn't know how to play that situation. They actually should have had the power there yeah. to, to get the deal yeah. done, but they, on that day, they didn't sell. Well, they might not proof. have been the, They yeah. look around and go, oh, no one else is bidding anymore. I don't want to bid against myself and all those, yeah. those sorts of things that buyers say. Um, yeah. yeah. Lots of learnings. Uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. And look, for you listeners who would like to get a copy of the book, as I said, I have a 30% discount for elephant listeners. So the website is getauctionready.com.au. And when it gets to the point with a discount code, just stick in there, elephant. Or contact Chris if you want one on the dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> Please join us for our next episode when we interview a developer. <laughs> now, you know what Chris and I think about buying off the plan. So Chris Daff is his name. Now, he is a developer, that's that's true, but he's also a developer with a bit of a difference. This is a fellow with a social conscience and he's developed a new model which is basically new pathways to home ownership and it's a really interesting one about developing fairly large scale but with a social imperative and the idea around building communities and really thinking of the future rather than profits. So you want to hear more about this one, please tune in. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.